Father, I want to continue in our prayer this morning, and I just want to ask God for you to be with us in this time. Father, I, um, as David said, Psalms, my sin is ever before me. God, I know, and you know my struggles and temptations and frailties and weaknesses. Father, it is my deep desire to be faithful to what you've entrusted to me, including leading, pastoring this church, but preaching your word each week. And uh, I just confess, Father, that I have no ability to do that well apart from you. I ask, Father, that you would make the words of my mouth pleasing to you today, but also, God, the meditations of my heart, that you'd forgive me of my sins, but that you would give me your spirit in preaching. And I ask for us as a church to be able to hear, ears to hear today, that your spirit would speak to us, that we would worship you as we study your word, We would thank you, God, for its clarity and its power. Also, that we would be changed and that we would mold according to your word by your spirit. So, Father, please help us because we are needy for you. Protect us from distraction and wandering minds and things that just happen to us because we're human. But let us be able to learn in knowledge and understanding today that we might apply in wisdom what you give to us. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. So this sermon was uh, rescheduled. Uh, today was is the, the final message in this series that we've been going through, studying the parables of Jesus. We've looked at most of them over the last several months. This is one we were going to look at before Advent uh, and in a in a worldly view, it was rescheduled unexpectedly. The weekend that I was going to preach this sermon was the weekend that my mom passed away, and I asked for the opportunity that weekend to share with you about her life and um, about her ministry of prayer. But I wanted to tackle, if you will, this parable because it is one that uh, can bring a lot of confusion. And so we rescheduled it to the end, but in God's kindness and His providence, as I've looked at it this week, I am convinced that it has been perfectly placed because this parable is a re-emphasis, a reiteration of the themes that we've looked at the past two weeks. And I believe that God is about the business of, in the Bible and in our lives, repeating things that are important. And, and he knows that we have to hear things and learn them. And I, I believe the fact that we are looking at the same themes for several weeks, not by our schedule, but by his providence, means that there are important things he wants us to understand that we have been studying. And so I want to I begin this morning, before we get to this particular parable, I want to go back to two recent themes, what we have seen in the previous two weeks. These are not all the themes of the last two parables, but two that I think are very important that we need to keep in mind as we study today's parable. And if you're a note taker, if you have one of our worship guides, 
You can do these as we fill in the blanks as we go through this together. Two recent themes. The first one is this. The requirement of a steward is to be faithful. That's a theme that we've looked at the past two weeks. That there is a requirement for a steward to be faithful. A steward is someone who manages someone else's resources or property or what they own. And so let me narrow this down for us in what we studied in the parable of the the talents. If you are in this room and you are a believer, if you are in this room and you identify as a Christ follower, then what the Bible says is that God has gifted you with certain capabilities certain unique grace that is on your life that makes you fruitful at specific things, good at certain things. And it's it's not the same as the person sitting next to you. We each have unique grace, unique capabilities. And God, with those capabilities, provides for us opportunities to use those abilities to advance His kingdom. That is true of every person in this room if you are a Christ follower. And it is also true that in the Bible, it is a requirement that stewards are to be faithful. So what God has given you, the abilities that He has given you, the opportunities that He gives you to use those to advance His kingdom, it is required of you to be faithful to those things. Just as it is required of me to be faithful to mine. That is a theme that we have looked at the last couple of weeks. The second theme is the future reality of judgment and reward based on our present conduct. The reality of judgment and reward based on present conduct. In other words, when it comes to this issue of being faithful with what God has given us, what we are doing now, presently, in this life, with what God has given us, there is a day coming and a reality coming where there will be a moment of judgment and of reward for believers according to their faithfulness. What we learned last week is Jesus says that one day He will sit on His throne and He will separate all of humanity into two groups. The sheep and the goats, the godly and the ungodly. And the visible evidence of which group you belong in will be the good works you did for caring for Jesus and His people especially the least of the church. That's what we looked at last week. That's the visible evidence that Jesus uses to say which group you belong in is the care that you showed for His people, the church, especially the least among the church. And in His view, love for Jesus and love for one another are bound together. What we talked about last week is you can't separate those. It's very popular in our culture today to try to do that. I love Jesus. I'm not really fond of His church. And what I said to you last week is He does not give you that option. He says He so closely ties your love for Him and your love for the people of God that He says when you meet the needs of other believers, it's like you're doing it for me. And He also says when you ignore the needs of other believers, it's like you're ignoring me. Good works do not produce salvation. Good works prove salvation. When you have been born again, you have a heart that wants to adore God. 
And it praises Him. And that same heart leads you to love one another. Care for one another. And like we said last week, you cannot love and care for one another if you're angry with one another. You cannot love and care for one another if you despise one another. Which is why the Bible says, forgive, 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 forgive. Work for peace. And one day, our faithfulness to that call, to use the capabilities and opportunities God has given us to advance His kingdom and to love one another, one day we will give an account of our lives for how faithful we were to that call. So those are the themes that we've been looking at, and those are the themes that I want you to keep in mind, and I want you to look for them in this parable, because they're very clear again, those themes that we've looked at the last couple of weeks. This is, as Scott mentioned, one of the most difficult parables of Jesus. He said, it's time to me because we've been talking about um, him and I this sermon and needing to preach this. And, and uh, this is a difficult parable. I, I tend to have a approach to study. Uh, I like to look at a text. I want to pray. I want to ask God to reveal to me knowledge and understanding. And, and then after that, I tend to go to other preachers or theologians and read some commentaries just to see what their take is. But I don't do that first. I do that second. So I, I this week, studied this parable really for the second time because I was going to preach it back before Advent. But I studied, I prayed, I asked God to help me to understand And I felt like he gave me some understanding of what it was about. And so then I went and read commentaries of other preachers and theologians, and I discovered none of them agreed with me. But I also felt that was okay because none of them agreed with each other either. The core issue is that the main character in this parable, the one that Jesus seems to want us to learn something from, is essentially a criminal. He is a dishonest man with no integrity. He is referred to in the text as an unrighteous servant. Yet, Jesus calls him shrewd. And in verse 8 says that his master praised him for his shrewdness, the very master that he had robbed from. That word shrewd can mean clever, perceptive, intelligent, Crafty, even wise. So the idea that Jesus could seemingly commend someone whose primary characteristics are selfishness and dishonesty stretches us a little bit. And at the very outset, what I need to say to you, what I think we need to understand is it is possible to learn from both sinners and saints. It is possible to learn lessons from people who are godly and people who are ungodly. So what is this story that Jesus tells? As with all the parables, we don't know if this is something that actually happened or if this is something Jesus is completely making up as an illustration. But notice in verse 1 in chapter 16, he says this to his disciples. That is important. He's not teaching this to a large crowd of believers and unbelievers. This is a a meeting with him and his disciples, and he's showing them this parable privately. And he says there's a rich man. We don't know anything about this man's character or or anything about who he is, just that there was a rich man and he had hired a manager to 
manage his affairs, to take care of all of his resources. And what we are told is that this, this manager had squandered his resources. And so that gets back to the manager. And he comes to him and he says, listen, I've heard rumors. I know what I think is going on and what I've heard you've been doing. And so I'm going to call you to account. I want you to get all my books together. We're going to have a meeting and I'm just going to go ahead and tell you this isn't going to end well. You need to go ahead and get your affairs in order because you're not going to be my manager anymore. And so in this interim time, he's not fired immediately. Some of you in the corporate world, you, you that, that's a little unbelievable because most of the time when you're fired in the corporate world, you're walked out the door. But this guy's given an opportunity. He's getting his stuff together, getting the books together. And he starts to panic. He says, what am I going to do? I tell you what I can't do. I can't go dig. I'm not going to be able to labor. Too old for that. I don't have energy. What am I going to do? Am I going to beg? No, I can't go. I, I've managed this man's estate. People know me. I've, I've been to, to big dinner parties and, and I'm well known. Now I'm going to be on the street as a beggar? I, I can't do that. I'm too prideful. He says, oh, wait a minute. I know what I can do. And essentially what he does is in the last moments while he is still in power as this rich man's manager, he comes up with a plan to restructure debt contracts with all of the people who owe his master money. He calls them in. He says, what do you owe? I owe this amount. He says, all right, cut it in half. We're going to slash that down. Hurry up. Go ahead and pay your debt, but you're going to pay only half of it or just a small percentage of what you owed. And he, he restructures the debt of so many of these people that owed his master money. And his whole plan was this. When I'm fired and I'm put out on the streets, all of these people are going to be really grateful to me. They're going to know that I did them a solid favor. And I'm not going to have to worry about working. I'm not going to have to worry about what I'm going to do because they'll invite me into their homes. They'll take care of me. This is my plan. And in verse 8, the master comes and he praises the unrighteous manager because he had acted Shrewdly, cleverly, wisely. So what does Jesus want us to learn from that? It would have been easy if the manager had showed up and just you know, thrown him in jail or something like that. But why is he being praised for his shrewdness? In your notes, what are some lessons from this unrighteous manager that we can learn? First of all, number one, we learn from this unrighteous manager that faithlessness to a trust is equal to guilt. When you are faithless to what someone has entrusted to you, you are guilty. And that is very clear. This manager doesn't argue with his boss. When his boss comes to him and says he has squandered my possessions, this man doesn't argue. He knows that he is guilty of that. Now here's what's interesting. We don't know how he squandered it. That word means he wasted it. Now maybe he mismanaged it for his own benefit. Maybe he skimmed it off the top or he did certain deals where he put money in his own pocket. That's immediately what our minds go to. But I would present to you there's another kind of squandering that can happen. It's called apathy. 
It's just not doing anything. Remember in the parable of the talents, you had the servant that was given five talents and he went and he made it ten. You had the servant that was given two talents and he went and he made it four. And you had the servant who was given one talent, the one who would become known as the unrighteous or the wicked servant. What did he do with that talent? He didn't spend it on himself. He didn't waste the money on what he wanted. He took the talent and he buried it. He took his opportunities to advance his master's wealth and he buried the opportunity. And that is a form of squandering. I think sometimes we assume that being faithless means we're being wasteful. Sometimes being faithless is simply being indifferent. God gives you things that He entrusts to you. He entrusts to you a marriage, children, family, money, time, energy, friends, a church, gifts. He entrusts those things to you. And yes, you can waste them by misusing them. You can also waste them by just being indifferent. Not being concerned about being faithful to what God wants you to do with what He has placed in your care. God's command to us is wise and faithful stewardship of everything He's given us. And it's not merely a nice additive to the Christian life to steward things well. It's a command. When we don't steward well what He's given us, we're being faithless to our call. What I'm not saying to us is perfection. None of us are going to be perfect in what God has asked us to do. We need Him, right? One of the very tenets of this church is we rely on Christ because we can do nothing without Him. What I am warning us against is being indifferent to what He's given us. To not striving to be faithful with where He's placed us. To not seeing what we do every day and how we use what He's given us as worship. Because it is. So we learn from this unrighteous manager that faithlessness to a trust equals guilt. The second thing we learn is that time is fleeting. Time is fleeting. For a while, this manager lived in his master's favor. Not only did he get to manage all of his affairs, but he also was provided for. The manager was able to receive provision as he was managing the affairs of his master. But what happened to him was he got short-sighted. He started just looking at what was right in front of him. He started looking at what had been given to him and how he could enjoy it and how his life was being taken care of and how he had the favor of of this provision. And he stopped thinking about the day when he would have to give an account for his work. He was enjoying everything about being the manager and he stopped thinking about accountability. He just lived for what was in front of him until time ran out. Until the manager showed up and said, 
I have heard you've been unfaithful. You're going to have to give me an account. It's easy for us as believers to get tunnel vision. It's really easy for us as believers to enjoy the gifts of God without honoring the gift giver. To enjoy what God has placed in our hands without worshiping Him as the Creator who sustains everything. It's really easy for us, myself included, to get really focused on how horrible of a day we're having and how many things are going wrong and forget the gift of breath that God put in our lungs to wake us up today. We live in His favor. Sometimes we sing that song, right? We live in the goodness of God. That is literal. We live in His goodness. We have breath and energy and strength in His goodness. Marriage is hard. Yes, we're not alone. Careers are hard. We have energy and strength to go to work. Money gets tight. We have something in our hands. We get tunnel vision. Time is fleeting. But the day of giving an account is coming. There will be a day where we will have to stand before Christ. And judgment or reward will come based on how faithful we were. We can learn that from this unrighteous manager. This unrighteous servant. Number three, we learn from him that the future is being determined right now. The future is being determined right now. Suddenly this manager realizes something. When this he gets called to account and he realizes all of a sudden that his future is it's not as secure as he thought it would be. He just assumed he'd be able to keep doing what he'd always done. And all of a sudden he realized that wasn't going to be the case, and now he needed to plan for his security in the future. If he had realized that sooner, if he'd have focused on that, then he would have realized that how I secure my future is I'm faithful to where my manager has put me. Or excuse me, where my uh, master has put me. But now that he had been unfaithful to that, he started worrying about what things were going to look like in the future. And he had to come up with his own way of securing himself. Jesus is not saying to his disciples or to any of us that we should work to secure our own future. That's not the point. As a matter of fact, the point of the gospel is the exact opposite of that. Jesus has secured your future. Believe the gospel. Believe what Christ has done. Believe that he lived that perfect life that is required by God that you and I cannot live. You look at your life and you say, I'm, I'm so often not faithful. None of us are. But Jesus was. He was the only perfect steward that has ever lived. He perfectly obeyed God in what God entrusted to Him. But He died as a criminal because He stepped in front of a bullet that was meant for us. He put Himself in our place. And when we believe that, 
and we believe in Him and we cling to Christ like we're holding to Him, like the like we're in a dark tunnel and we can't see, but there's somebody right in front of us who has a flashlight and we're just staying as close to them as we possibly can. When we cling to Christ that way, then when we get to the throne, Jesus will acknowledge us before His Father and His Father deems us righteous. That's how we secure our future. We believe the gospel. Jesus isn't saying work harder. Work harder so you have a future. That's not what he's saying. Here's what I think he's saying. Work harder so other people have a future. Work so other people can hear the gospel. This parable of the dishonest manager comes directly after the parables of lost things. You have the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son, and then immediately this parable. There are people around us right now who do not have a secure future. They have not believed the gospel. They are not trusting in Christ. And they are headed to a moment of judgment. And in God's sovereign plan, He has placed certain things in our hands. Capabilities and opportunities to make Him known. And in His sovereign plan, when we are faithful to manage well what He has given to us, He connects our faithfulness to His saving purposes in their life. We work to make Him known. We work with what He has given us to help their future become secure by believing the gospel. Which brings us to this last lesson from the shrewd manager, his life. Opportunities should be seized with purpose and creativity. Opportunities should be seized with purpose and creativity. Opportunities for what? Well, in his case, he was trying to secure his future. For us, what we're talking about is the opportunities we have to help other people see their future eternity secured by the gospel. And look in verse 8. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. It's very important that we understand this nuance. His rich master showed up, realized what he had done in restructuring all these contracts. He doesn't praise him for his criminal acts. He doesn't praise him for his dishonesty. He doesn't say, good job wasting more of my money. Good job taking what I was due and cutting it in half. He doesn't say that. He praises him for his shrewdness. Now, we don't know what happens next. It may have been as simple as the master looking at the servant and saying, well, good job. That was clever. On your way out the door, I see what you did. You got me. It's possible this rich man being a businessman looked at him and said, that's pretty good. I'm going to keep you around. If you got that kind of shrewdness about you, I, I changed my mind. I'm going to let you run my stuff, but we're going to do things differently. We don't know what happened next. The point, though, is he wasn't praised for criminal behavior. He was praised because he took advantage of the last of his opportunities. He was clever in taking advantage of what he could while he could to secure his future. 
In verse 8, Jesus says, the master praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. And then look at Jesus' commentary. For the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. Jesus is not saying, follow this man's example, be dishonest. That's not what He's saying at all. He's making a comparison. He's saying, you need to be really careful. Because if you're not careful, the ungodly will prove to be more shrewd in dealing with the world than the church will be. The people of the world will be more shrewd in dealing with the world to secure their own future than you as the church will be in dealing with the world as to secure their eternal well-being. Look at this life truth. I think Jesus is teaching His disciples through this story to be clever in using their temporary resources for eternal purposes. I think Jesus is teaching His disciples to be clever in using temporary resources for eternal purposes. I'm using the word clever there to encompass purpose and creativity. What I think the wise, excuse me, the uh, unrighteous manager used. Purpose and creativity. Let me put it this way. If the unrighteous servant in this parable was shrewd enough to use his master's resources while he still could in order to secure his future, should not we, the people of light, the people of the church, use our heavenly Father's resources while we still can to try and secure other people's eternal future by helping them hear the gospel? I think that's what Jesus is driving. Here you have this servant who's a criminal who knows how to be shrewd, clever, and use his opportunities to take care of himself. Church, don't let them be more shrewd than you. You have all the resources of the kingdom of heaven at your disposal. Use those resources that God has placed in your hands. Use them while you still can. Use them before accountability comes. Use your opportunities to advance the kingdom of God and help people meet Jesus so that one day when they stand before Him, they will be counted among the faithful. Bring in the lost sheep. Go find the lost coin. Wait on the lost son. Do so faithfully with everything God has given you. He's not saying go and make much of yourself and be dishonest like this man. He's saying be shrewd like he was and take advantage of your opportunities. Look at it in verse 9. It's very clear. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth so that when it fails they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. There's the whole point of the parable. Jesus says, I'm telling you, 
One day, worldly wealth is going to fail. He doesn't say if it fails. He says when it fails, the economy of this world will crash. The wealth of this world will come to nothing. It doesn't matter how much we have, how much we've gained. It will fail. So Jesus says, while you have some of it, while I've put something in your hands, use it to make friends. But what kind of friends is he talking about? The kind that will welcome you to heaven when you get there. In other words, friends that you share the gospel with or that you use the resources and the wealth he's given you so that they can come to know Christ. And one day when you get to heaven, you will get to meet the people that are there in God's providence because of your gifts, because of your generosity, because of how you used your time and your resources and your energy and your money to advance his kingdom. That's what Jesus is saying here. I said to you earlier that you have certain capabilities and graces in your life that are unique to you, and God couples those with unique opportunities. And I could go around this room and call out every one of your names and say that to you directly because it is true of all of you. There are people that God will put in your life, that He's probably put in your life right now, that will listen to you about Jesus that will not listen to anyone else. There are people who will hear the gospel in this church that won't hear it anywhere else. God places those opportunities. He gives us those chances. And the whole point of this parable is be clever and be shrewd and make the most of your chances. When I say creativity, I'm obviously calling us to live with purpose, but when I say creativity, I'm not talking about just being weird or go on the fringe just for the sake of that. I am saying to you, it's okay as a Christ follower to think outside the box. You don't have to wait for your church to create a program to get involved in to go share Jesus. You don't have to just do it the way it's always been done in tradition and and in, in, in the church culture. I'm not saying it's bad to do those things or follow those things. I'm just saying you don't have to do it just that way. You are made in the image of the Creator of everything. That beautiful sunset that you adore, the Creator put that there, and you're made in His image. So it's okay for you to pray and think about how to use what He's given you in a creative way to make Christ known. I'm not talking about be creative so you don't have to say the name of Jesus. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about trying to try to trick someone into church without them really knowing what you believe. I'm talking about creative ways for you to use the talents God's given you, the energy, the money, the time, whatever He's placed in your hands, to make Jesus known. When I say that to you, if you have something that pops in your mind and you go, yeah, but ignore the rest of that. But my season of life, but what's happening right now, but this, but that. No, ignore all that. Because this is true of you. This is not about what your pastor does or your leaders do. It's us, the body of Christ, what we are to do. So I think the heart of this parable can be summarized this way in your notes. If a worldly 
master commends an unfaithful servant for his shrewd use of money to secure his own future, how much more will Christ commend you, the faithful servants, in wisely using wealth for the purpose of advancing God's kingdom? If that master praised his unrighteous servant, How much more is Christ, the righteous King, going to commend your faithful trust of what He has given you to advance His kingdom? I want to say again, I'm not talking when I say faithful about perfect. I'm not talking about getting it all right. When we went through the parable of the talents, I said you're not going to be rewarded based on your productivity. You're going to be rewarded for trying to be faithful. Let God worry about the growth. Let God worry about what happens when you share the gospel or when you give. Let God worry about that. He handles that part. We are called to faithfully steward everything He's given us. Marriages, children's, children, friendships. You say, I don't have a lot of time. Okay, steward what you have. I don't have a lot of money. Steward what you have. I don't have a lot of energy. Steward what you have. Make the most of it. I put an asterisk next to wealth. Because wealth can be thought of as any worldly resource God puts in your hands. He gives us material goods, material wealth. He gives us money. He gives us cars. He gives us homes. He gives us careers. I can't remember which theologian it was that said he felt like one day we would give an account for every empty bedroom we have. Scott's laughing because he has no empty bedrooms. But anyway, there's a reason for that, though. We have immaterial wealth, time, energy, talents. But it is really clear at the end of this parable that Jesus specifically has in mind here money. You read verses 10 through 13, it's very clear that the wealth he's thinking of right now is the money God gives us. So I want to end with two principles about money that we see in verses 10 through 13 as Jesus wraps up this parable of the unrighteous manager. Number one, do not expect to be given more if you waste what little you do have. Now, yes, you can apply that to anything God puts in your hands. From time to family. You can apply it to anything that He places in your hands. But Jesus here is talking about money. I have personally never met anyone who said, I got enough of it. I have met people who have told me, I don't have enough. And I don't have enough to give and I don't have enough to be generous to others. I have met people who have communicated to me an idea that I think a lot of us sometimes fall into. If God will give me more, then I'll be generous. If God would just increase what I have, then I would give. But Jesus says in verse 10, that's not true. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in much, excuse me, whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. 
Jesus says, if you are unfaithful when God gives you a little, you will be unfaithful if He gives you a lot. You're not just going to become faithful to be generous and a giving person because He puts a lot more money in your lap. If you're unfaithful with a little, you'll be unfaithful if He made you the richest person in this state. I believe firmly that giving systematically to God through His church, which we call tithing, and giving generously to others in need is something that God calls all people to do. I believe that more than I talk about it, honestly. I probably should talk about that more than I should. I'm always afraid there's going to be a visitor who comes in who thinks all churches do is talk about money, and I'll be talking about money, and they'll say, see, told you. And I'm like, well, I talk about it once a year. I probably should talk more about it than I do because Jesus talked a lot about it. So while I'm talking about it, I'm going to hit it hard. While I do not think that your giving ensures that God will make you rich, let me just be very clear, the Bible doesn't teach that. That if you give, He'll make you rich with more money. It does teach that if you give, God will make you rich in some way. Especially spiritually. And I do think that God tests us. I think He tests us even with giving us a little. He tests our faithfulness with some small amount. And I do think the Bible shows us that often our faithfulness with what He has given us is a determining factor about what else He may give us in the future. It's not a guarantee. It's not a pyramid scheme. Don't let people convince you that that's what the church is. But there is a principle in the Bible that God tests us. Tests us with a little to see what we will do with it. And if we prove ourselves to be faithful, He may give us more. It's in the Bible. Josh Dean points out a lot that tithing is the only act of worship in the Bible where God says, test me in this. Test me and see if I will not do what I have said. And Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 10 and 11 Paul writes that when we are generous in giving for the glory of God's name and our heart for wanting to make Him known, God will work to keep enriching us so our generosity can increase. It doesn't say exactly how He'll enrich us, so maybe it is we give and He'll give us more to give with. But He does promise to enrich us. Maybe we give and He pours out spiritual blessings to us in abundance. And you and I need to value spiritual riches more than we value worldly riches. So let me put it this way. The person who has a one-bedroom home, who doesn't wait for a larger house to be hospitable and invite people in and use what they have to make Jesus known, that person may find that their faithfulness with that one-bedroom home is the catalyst that God will use to bless them with an even larger home later 
for hospitality and to make him known. It's not a guarantee. What is guaranteed is spiritual riches if they are faithful with what God has given. Maybe he'll always be in a one-bedroom home, and it'll be amazing what he does there. Or maybe he will give some of us with more. So, don't expect to be given more if you waste what little you do have. Some of us say, God, why won't you give me more? And his answer is, because it would ruin you if I did. And I love you too much for that. The second principle I want us to see is money will be your servant for good or your master for evil. And that is in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Money will be your servant for good. You will put it to work. It will be a tool in your hands to advance God's kingdom, or it will be a master over you that will bring much evil. The Bible doesn't call money the root of all evil. It calls the love of money the root of all evil. I want you to hear me say this very clearly. Poverty doesn't equal godliness. It doesn't mean if you're poor, you're automatically going to be godly. But... Not many people, including Christians, get through this life without struggling with the love of money. If you, if you don't struggle with that, if you don't struggle with loving money and what money can buy, you are an exception to the rule. And money quickly becomes our God if we're not on guard. And it doesn't matter how much we have. Money can become our master because we have it, and we're doing everything we can to keep it, our money can become our master because we're chasing it and chasing it and chasing it until we get it. If your thought is, if my thought is, life would be so much better if I had more money. But you don't think life would be so much better if I was more godly then money may have become the master. If you go out of your way to give more time and more energy and more thought to advancing your career so that your checking account balance can increase, but you give little time and energy and thought to advancing the kingdom and caring for the church, then money may be becoming your master. I'm not trying to do a preacher trick. All of us struggle with this. I'm simply trying to say something strong so that we consider our lives and our hearts. Because it happens like that. That all of a sudden what God has given us to serve Him with becomes the thing we're serving. Godliness is more valuable than riches. If God gives you riches, use it to help other people become more godly. I'm not saying you got to sell everything you have and give it all away unless Jesus tells you to do that. And if He tells you to do that, then do it. But what Jesus is saying is if your thought is, I can love both Christ and money, He says you can't. 
I could chase my career with everything I have and sacrifice everything in my life to get that and to achieve my goals, and I can do that and still love God? He says, you can't. One day the moment will come where you have to choose, and you will choose to love one and despise the other. This isn't about selling everything you have and being poor. It's about keeping your hand flat when God puts something in it. Not immediately closing your fist around it and saying, that's mine. It's about holding His gifts like this. Some of what He gives you, it's for you. Enjoy it. Yes, spend time with your family. Take resources, resources, he's, resources that He's given you and enjoy it. But some of what He puts in your hands, He puts it in your hands for somebody else to make Him known. It's not about selling everything you have. It's about managing your money, not just based on your plans and your wants and your needs, but first with a thought of what pleases God. What will be pleasing to Him? The best way to keep money from being your master is to give as God calls you to. Give, give, give. And trust Him. Trust Him. I'll give you a funny illustration of this and then we'll, we'll end. Um, and I, I promise you I don't say this to point to myself at all I just sharing with you a story um, a few weeks ago we were up at Winn-Dixie Addie Beth and I I don't remember what we ran up there to get but we ran to get something and getting some groceries we come back out and we're putting things in my jeep and I see a, I see a gentleman kind of standing in front of me and he starts walking over and I immediately in my mind thought he's about to ask me for something and he asked, he said, sorry to bother you, pointed to his car, and he said, hey, my, my wife um, just got out of the hospital, could you spare anything? And I, and I told him the truth, I said, man, I, I don't have any cash, I'm sorry. Yeah, I didn't. And he said, no problem, thank you, got in his car. I got in my Jeep. There's part of me, I'm going to be honest, I was relieved I didn't have any cash, because it's pretty easy when people ask you for money just to not have it to give. But I don't have anything. The moment I sat down and put my seatbelt on, I just felt a stirring. I go, oh, this is, this is something. You got a, you got your credit card. You could offer something. So I pull up next to him, roll the window down. He rolls the window down. I said, look, I, I don't have any cash. I said, but I, was, I, I can buy you guys dinner if you want to follow me down here to Jack's. And he, he was like, well, that, that'd be great. She hasn't eaten today. And I was like, all right, well, Let's go down there. And I said, what, what do you want? He said, I don't want anything. He said, I'm just, he said, I just really just want to make sure she's okay. And I said, well, I'll buy you something. He's like, I'm, I'm fine. He said, plain cheeseburger, small fry drink. He's like, all right. So he followed me. We went to Jack's. It was a good night at Jack's. We waited in line for about 30 minutes. I ordered like three times what he said and I took it to him and he had parked in the parking lot. I walked over there, handed him stuff. And, and I said, I got some extra in there for you. And, and I said, look, I, I pastor a church over here in Pinson. And I said, if, 
if we can ever help you out with groceries or anything, let us know. And he told me where he was from. And he said, I really, he said, I really appreciate it. And he said, right now, I, I don't have anything to uh, put it in. We don't have a refrigerator at the moment. Well, it just so happens that someone in this church had just given us a refrigerator. And they donated to the church. Sometimes people do that because they give things and appliances and, and we can store them and give them away when we need them. And I'm going to be honest with you. When people gave us that refrigerator, my thought was the refrigerator that my family has in our garage is on its last leg. We could actually use this refrigerator. So as I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, should I offer him that refrigerator? What if I offer him that refrigerator and I need it in two weeks? And yes, I know they gave it to the church, so you guys can condemn me if you want. But anyway, that's what's going through my head. What if I need it in two weeks? And immediately, like in my mind, it was just immediate, God said, you don't think I'll let you be able to buy a refrigerator? So I said, hey, you know what? I, I actually can help you out. And, and I invited him to church, and, and so that's kind of where we are. He's going to come get the refrigerator next week, and I don't know what will happen with it. I don't know. A point in all of that is... What was my point? My point was, the best way to keep money from being your master is give it away when God calls. Don't, don't grasp everything. Don't just think in your mind, but if I give this away, what if in the future Jesus says, I'll be there. I'll provide. Trust me. Be faithful. I mean, if he if He always gives us everything in that moment that we're going to need for 30 years, we're not going to have to trust Him. We trust Him through giving. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. I want to point you back to something that Rob mentioned earlier. And I want to invite you to think about this word that we've been pondering this week as a our intercessors, the word zeal. It's a word that means eagerness and enthusiasm. My prayer this week is that the people of Agape would have zeal for worship. Zeal for the love of God and the love of one another. It's not enough for me in seeing the Bible just for us to come to church and worship or to worship in our homes because we know we should. I want you to be eager about it. I want you to, I want you to grieve when you can't do it because you're so eager to be with each other in worshiping Christ. And I want you to love each other, not just because you have to, but because you are thankful that you get to because of what Christ has done for you. And I can't create zeal. I can't create it in myself, but we can ask God for it. So this morning we're going to have some prayer partners over here on my left. We're going to end singing together. I want to invite you to think about God's Word and what He has said to you today. I want to invite you that if there's anything at all that you need to be prayed for, come be prayed for. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't have to be just about this text today. It could be health issues or anything that you have going on. But I, I want to ask you to think about your life and your love for Jesus and your love for other people. And I want you to ask yourself, would the word zeal properly describe that? When I think about how I worship God, 
When I think about my eagerness to be with His people, when I think about my love for others, is there a zeal about me? And if you lack zeal, would you ask God for it today? Because all these things that we've talked about, we can discipline ourselves and discipline ourselves and discipline ourselves. It won't last unless we have zeal for God and love for Him and love for each other. So Father, it is my ask today that You would bless this church and these people and our visitors and those who have been here with us today, everyone who knows Jesus, that You would bless us with zeal for Your name, with eagerness and love and enthusiasm for Your worship. God, we spend time on what we love. We spend energy on what we love. We spend our resources on what we love. We talk to people about what we love. It's automatic. God, let our zeal for You be above everything. That it is, it is with great love and energy and enthusiasm that we give ourselves to Your worship and that we care for one another. God, let us not just be people who go through the motions of religion and do things because we feel guilty or because we think we have to. God, let us have zeal for Your kingdom and to make Your name known. God, make us compassionate for the lost. God, let us see people that we come across as those who will one day stand before You, godly or ungodly. God, let us know how to use our capabilities and our opportunities. God, let us be faithful. God, help those in this room who want to be faithful, to be wise. Sometimes, God, we desire faithfulness, but we don't know how. There's so many needs. We have so many things going on in our lives. And God, we just get paralyzed because we don't know how to serve. We don't know what to do. God, let us know that You are the faithful King who gives wisdom to His people. And You will teach us how to be faithful if we will ask. So God, let us be found asking how to be faithful with what You've given. God, make us people who are good stewards, who can be entrusted with more, not for ourselves, but for Your name. And God, if there is anyone in this room who doesn't know Christ, anyone who is merely religious, but they've never clung to Jesus as their hope, would, to, would You let today be the day they are saved? Let today be the day that they come to know You. This morning I invite you to worship. Pray. Get up and pray for someone. If God lays down your heart, come and be prayed for. Sing. Pray. And if you have any worries or doubts about your relationship with Christ, please before you leave here today, come and let me know that. And we'll make time to talk. Let's worship together. Yeah.